Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. And those of you joining us online, good morning to you. We continue in the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Acts chapter 18. We are going to be introduced to the church at Corinth. And if you know anything about the churches in the New Testament, you would take the church of Philadelphia, one of the stellar churches, and the church at Laodicea. And if you put them together, you got Corinth. They've got some solid Christians here and some wackos. And we're not going to get all of that, but I'm excited about this chapter. Uh, we're going to take, hopefully, verses 1 through 17, but we will stand and read verses 9 to 11. So please stand with your Bibles open for the reading of God's Word. Beginning in verse 9, Acts chapter 18. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night vision. Let me reread that. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you or to, to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Please be seated. I figured if I read less, I get to talk more. <laughs> Corinth, worth the troubles. That's the title. And uh, I just again, I'm a little excited about this. This city of Corinth, this ancient city known for her ports, the uh, shipping ports, known for uh, the goddess Aphrodite and her temple, known for the Consumption, excessive consumption of alcohol, legalized religious prostitution, gambling, hedonism, and on and on it goes. These characterized Corinth. And as wicked as it was before God, and as problematic as Corinth was to the Apostle Paul, God and Paul loved the people there. And just looking over at Paul's second Corinthian letter, I love the second Corinthian letter because Paul's tone gets to soften in the beginning. He's got to ramp it up a little later again. But uh, it is just a, a very heartfelt letter. And he writes in second Corinthians in the second chapter. And remember, we're learning Christianity. Anytime we open the word of God up, these are the first Christians. It's the template for Christianity and uh, looking at Second Corinthians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes, And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. He's saying, you guys are breaking my heart. I love you so much. I, I, he started this church. He's made so many converts here. And uh, yet there was again that, that element of the Laodicean spirit in, in this church. It was so bad that they were getting drunk at the communion table. And so, you know, he, by reading that section from Corinthians, I'm sharing that Paul had a heart for them, as problematic as they were. He goes on to say also in 2 Corinthians, I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. Christianity shouldn't be this way, but it is. And what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it when you find out that miracles and magic are not the same thing? That there are greater realities. I come to that. I get ahead of myself here. Why then did poor Paul pour so much of himself into these Christians in this city? Why was he so in love with them and they not so in love with him? Again, an element of them, a large element of them. Many of these Christians were immature, worldly, Shallow, vindictive, smart mouths, irreverent, and unlikable. And yet he still reached out to them. Corinth, worth the troubles. Why? Why did Paul stick to it? And we're going to find that in the, eight, in the 10th verse of Acts 18 in this chapter. 
where God says to Paul, I have many people in this city. That changes everything. Paul knew God was, he was with God on this. He knew that he was where he needed to be. He knew God put him in this city because there were souls to be saved. He wasn't coming to Corinth to benefit from its wealth and carve out a happy life for himself. He put up with Corinth and her troubles because God loved them. The lessons, they fly off the page when we come to this church. We have two letters to the church at Corinth. That's quite a bit of material. And references to them in other letters also. And yet, with all of his love for Corinth, no love was lost for the other churches. There's so much love. We have so much potential. We have enough potential to love. That we can love without losing love. It's not like, well, you know, I'm out of love. Sorry. I love that guy over there so much. I got nothing left for you. And Jesus, he taught that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. And we love ourselves. Uh, But this, this did not at all mean that it was going to be easy in Corinth simply because God wanted to reach them, because God loved them, because God sent Paul there. It did not mean that his assignment was going to be either easy or pleasant. But it'd be worth it. Christianity is not an escape from reality. It is a revealer of greater realities, and that's not all. It is an overcomer of unkind realities. There are facts in this life that are all under the sun, meaning under the curse that goes back to Adam and Eve in the garden. Mankind is under the curse, and Christianity is here to stand up to these things, to face them, and to make converts to Christ through the truth. I do believe in miracles, not magic. But I think also there are a lot of Christians that believe in magic and call it miracles. And you'll just sometimes, you know, I just believe this and I believe that with no basis for it. You know, many times it's contrary to the scripture. And they lose sight of the mission. They're so busy looking for miracles, they're not looking at the mission. What is the mission? Well, to be Christ-like. And to share that Christ-likeness. To strengthen other believers with truth and not fairy tales, not magic. Oh, God's just going to work it out. You don't know that sometimes. Then there is also the need to reach the lost. Every Christian should be burdened for lost souls. Our attitude is not, I got mine, too bad for you. Our attitude is, I got mine, now I got to get you to get yours too. Under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, we are... Supposed to be wise as serpents, as harmless as doves. You can't improve on that statement. Nor should we lose sight of it. So this is what's happening here. Corinth, this ancient city, worth the trouble. We'll come back to it. Verse 1, after these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And that's, that's now about 40 miles um, from Athens to Corinth. He, coming back, well, let me just say this. If Athens was the center of human thinking as they thought it was, Corinth was the center of corrupt life, and they knew it was. So you you have those in Athens that are very intelligent but delusional from a spiritual perspective. Then you got these in Corinth. They're just immoral. They're corrupt. And they knew they were. And they celebrated it. They even created a religion to back it up. They weren't the only ones. But because it was such, uh, the, probably the, the, one of the largest uh, seaports in the ancient world, there in the Mediterranean, uh, they just had so much traffic coming in and out. Athens was full of idolatry. Corinth was full of sensuality. This means that there were people and their behaviors going on in these places Without God. And the Christians were sent to do something about it in the timing of God. So it says here in verse 1 again, After these things Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. After his efforts in, in, in Athens, the Spirit moved Paul from what relative to what was going to happen in Corinth. He moved him from a waste of time in Athens 
to the, uh, the, the harvest field in Corinth. And many will believe in Corinth, incidentally. This is going to be a large movement, but it's going to take a lot of work to keep it straight. But we should talk about this city a little bit more so that we can appreciate the work that Paul had before him and the letters that he will write to uh, this group of believers. So base was the city that in other places, if a woman was immoral, she was called a Corinthian. So, 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 such a reputation that if a man was lewd, they would say he's been Corinthianized. I mean, who would want that reputation? Who would want to tell anybody when, they, when asked, where are you from? I'm from Corinth. You, you wouldn't want to because it had attached to it this immoral behavior, even amongst pagans. Immorality in the name of religion, drunkenness, vulgarity for profit. And it was a very profitable city. Long before Christ came, Corinth was doing well as a city. Now, the Greeks, they loved their plays. And whenever they put a play on and they had a character in it who was from Corinth, he would be the drunk in the play. And they felt they were identifying with the, with the people, that this was a fact. This was their reputation. It is into this city that Paul marches into with nothing but the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there were people who would gobble it up. Thank God. Again, you cannot, you know, as I, you hear me say how difficult Christians can be. Because I think a lot of Christians don't understand that. But how wonderful Christians can also be. Uh, Christians can be incre- an incredible blessing. And uh, may we never lose sight of that. May we never let the minority of troublemakers take away from us the majority of solid believers who pursue Christ and want to be like him. Anyway, it became a proverb. He lives like a Corinthian. And it, it was not a compliment. It was prosperous even 800 years before Christ came along because it was famous for its bronze, its pottery, and its shipbuilding. And that just expanded when it became, again, one of the uh, most important trade cities uh, in ancient Greece. The city thrived. And when, and when these, these sailors would come in because of all the shipping going on, well, they had an appetite for sin. Let's hit the city. Not you know even today even our sailors and marines when they go to a port they got to have a shore patrol go with them to, to corral them in because they can really do a lot of damage to a city. Well, this um, Corinth uh, always full of sin and appetite for sin. Their religion, decadent religion. The great temple of Aphrodite was there. She was the female goddess of fertility, said the ancients. They just made these things up. And if they liked them, they stuck. Uh, no, no basis in it. There was nothing they could show to, to back any of this up. And they didn't really care. There were over a thousand priestesses in this city. All of them prostitutes. And they would call them Vestal virgins. They weren't virgins. I mean, just don't, don't butcher any language like that you would like to say to them. And they would, uh, you know, go to, into the city at night and apply their trade for the support of their temple. It was a city of anything goes. And when Paul writes his Roman letter, he's writing from Corinth, uh, he's writing to the Romans, and it's as though he's looking out the window, or though he just came back from the marketplace and got a dose of this. And we in America, you know, we talk about the, the movies and the music and the uh, magazines at the impulse rack and the, 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 just the, the vulgarity, the lewdness and all and on. Yeah, nothing on Corinth. Uh, so we shouldn't be timid uh, or feel like we're always in a state of retreat because the world is doing its thing. Well, let the world do its thing. We're going to do ours in the midst of it. And that was Paul's attitude in Corinth. He walks into this city, and he's, he's pretty nervous. He's, he's afraid. Well, we'll come to that, verse 2. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. 
There's so much you have to leave out. You know, you want to comment on Pontus, because, well, I will comment on Pontus. Uh, you know, that was a region by the, uh, northern, in northern Turkey today on the Black Sea where Paul wanted to go there with the gospel, and God said, no, I don't want you going there with the gospel. Because, you know, who knows? God would have said, you know, hey, they'll kill you there. I'm going to protect you from that. That's why we're submitted to the Spirit. But these two, Aquila and Priscilla, uh, she's a special woman. Uh, by the time, we, in the latter days when Paul is still writing his last written letter to, to Timothy, he mentions her, and now he, call, he calls her Prisca, because, you know, they had just developed this, uh, just a, a beloved relationship in Christ. And uh, so she, she's a bit of an outstanding character uh, if, you, if you follow uh, her, her, her and her husband Aquila through the letters of Paul. They were Jewish Christians. They have Latin names here. They're refugees from trouble that happened in Rome. And this is an important part, again, of our faith. Why did they leave Rome? Well, because it tells us the Emperor Claudius booted out the Jews. Now, he didn't boot out all of them. Uh, Rome's big city. But he did boot out those who were connected to the trouble that was going on in the Jewish communities. Uh, they will later come back to the city. But for now, uh, they're in Corinth. Paul is going to fall in love with Rome because of them. They're going to tell Paul about the Christians in Rome, the Jewish Christians predominantly uh, at this time. None of the apostles of Jesus Christ had yet been to Rome. Uh, Peter and Paul will later both be martyred in Rome. And uh, from Paul's Roman letter that he writes later, uh, we learn that there was a sizable church there. Just look at the last chapter of Romans and the names he's rattling off. And we have how many more Christians were there. It's quite, quite remarkable. Well, Gentiles were initially in the minority at the church in Rome. But when the Jews, the leading Jewish Christians were booted out, the Gentiles increased. And by the time Aquila and Priscilla come back, uh, five or six years later, uh, the Gentiles will be in the majority. And that's the story of the church. That should be meaningful to you. Because these are people things. These are realities. They don't care if you like it or not. But you should, because it's quite exciting. The Roman historian Suetonius described what may have caused Claudius to put the Jews out of Rome. Again, he, he couldn't put them all out. It would just be you know, quite a few. But he, he got the leaders out. He refers to, in his writings, the constant riots amongst the Jews and in the instigation of Christus, which is Christ. So what you had is you had Pentecostal converts. You had Jews at Pentecost years before, 20 years earlier, go back home to Rome, and they believed Jesus was the Messiah. And they preached that in their synagogues. And it began to become a point of contention between the Jews who didn't want to receive Jesus as Messiah. So much so that the government had to get involved. Those Christians were preaching. You get the feeling when you read, a, read the book of Acts that those Christians wanted to spread the gospel wherever they went. All of them. We talked about this up in Antioch. You had the Jewish, you know, the Jewish uh, Christians reaching out to the Gentiles. And we see, you know, it's just you. Well, how about us today? Are we too busy looking to be raptured? Are we too busy looking, looking for signs and wonders? Are we too busy with our careers, our family? Our family and careers are very important. But these things you should have done without leaving the others undone. You still should have a burden for lost souls. And even if you're growing up as a child, you're supposed to be developing your skills as a Christian. You're not supposed to just be, you know, well, the world is doing it. I'll do it too. Is what I'm saying a high standard? God's standards are high. Just read the Ten Commandments. You know, you know at one point the apostle said to Jesus, this is a hard saying. Well, it's better to not get married. You put things on us at a high standard. He said, that's right. He never apologizes. They are right. And then he says, but I also have a ton of grace and mercy with me to help you through it. 
Well, anyway, this Crestus is a reference to Christ. Not going to get into the uh, theolo- uh, not well historical debates, but that's who, that's what it was about. Because there's no known instance of a Jewish male with the name Crestus in that part of the world at that time in history. And there are quite a bit of records. So this is uh, Suetonius in a clumsy effort to uh, mention Christ, uh, Crestus, in, in, and uh, that's what was happening there. Aquila and Priscilla were involved in that, and they were expelled from Rome, the conflict over Christ. Incidentally, in Rome, there were 13, no less than 13 synagogues. That means there's a high population of Jews. And each synagogue has to have 10 men to become a synagogue. But that doesn't mean it's not limited to 10 men. These, that's a thriving city. They were probably packed with, with Jewish uh, believers. And uh, this is also a time stamp because we know from other historical records, this is about... Uh, 52, 53 A.D., so you figure about 23 years after the resurrection, this is what's going on in Christianity. When, uh, so it says, and he came to them. Well, Paul was looking for work. They're tent makers. Well, so is Paul a tent maker. And he writes about uh, how he supports himself with his own hands. He wrote to the Corinthians. He actually was kind of in their face with this. He says, I didn't take a penny from you. And that's that's not a... That's uh, some insight on what he was dealing with. He was dealing with petty people. So he says, no, I, I didn't want any money from you because I hear, never hear the end of it. Whereas the Philippians, you know, they, they, they gave to Paul freely. Well, in Corinthians, uh, he mentions that he was uh, worked with his own hands. To the Thessalonians, twice he mentions. So here it is. Here we see it happening uh, in the city of Corinth. This began a lifetime friendship. In Romans... 16, Paul brings up these two again, and he says, They risked their own necks for me. They put their own lives in jeopardy for me. Well, he met them in Corinth. And God is going to tell him, Don't fear, I've got people here in Corinth. So the point is that there were some uh, very serious threats in this city to Paul's life, and he knew it. And so did Aquila and Priscilla. And these he gained two assets when, he, when these two people came into his life. Ask yourself, when you enter into a life of someone else, when you're introduced to someone else, are you going to be an asset or a liability? Uh, it's, uh, I think sometimes that is a valid question. Anyway, reading from Corinthians, uh, he says, Paul writing to, uh, writing to the Corinthians, the churches in Asia greet you, Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. Now, a lot of Christians want to use that. See, the church doesn't have to, it's supposed to meet in the house. No, it's actually, it didn't work well. They wanted to meet as the synagogues and the assembly places like the synagogues, but they could not. And once Rome realized, okay, Judaism and Christianity are not the same thing, the Christians got persecuted. And they could not uh, build buildings. They could not have assembly places. And when they did, they were accused of doing all sorts of, you know, uh, vile things in, in the dark. Uh, Paul will rent out the school of Tyrannus, and there he will preach for a while. But uh, don't, don't, be mis- don't misunderstand that verse. When it says that they met in the, the church met in their house, it's because they had nowhere else. There was nowhere else open to them. Then he, when he writes t- to Timothy, many years later, towards the end of his life, he says, Greet Prisca and Aquila, and the household of Anesiphorus. He's just so involved with people. Uh, he just, uh, just a magnificent, magnificent pictures of Christianity are right here on the pages of the New Testament. And yet I think they're missed by so many because they're busy looking for signs and wonders. Uh, I think it's a wonder that there's no sign. Anyway, verse 3. So because he was of the same trade, they stayed with them. He stayed with them and worked for, by occupation, they were tent makers. God set this friendship up and he preserved it. And don't, don't take your friendships for granted. If you have a good friend in your life, you need to be praying to God that God protects that friendship. Especially as a Christian. I don't care what age you are, it's hard to keep a friendship over the years. Uh, it's possible, for sure. 
But, uh, so, so, you know, many friendships. You know, we, were, we grew up together. We were friends for so many years. And then what happened? And all of a sudden, they, they go different ways. And usually it's petty stuff. Sometimes it's not. It's worth praying for your friendships to be held intact. Well, it does not say that Paul stayed with them because they were believers, but tent makers. And uh, I, the believer part was just uh, belonged to the whole thing. And the tent makers were not just tents, they sails, uh, n- not ma- making sails, but like for boats. Uh, they dealt with leather, canvas, and cloths. They could make a range of things. The rabbis taught, and Paul was a rabbi, the rabbis taught that if you did not teach your son a trade, you taught him to be a beggar. And what they meant by that is if he became the rabbi in a synagogue, many synagogues could not afford to pay their rabbis. How would he survive? He needed to have a trade. Maybe he moved to a place where there were not enough Jews to have a synagogue. How would he support himself? I think any man entering into the pastorate should have a trade or profession to fall back on so that he never has to worry about, well, what if I get fired? What if there's no one comes back to the church and there's no money for a salary? Well, he'd go to work. Uh, I think uh, every pastor should uh, have a trade uh, or two. Anyway, verse 4, And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. And so he's there, (laughs) typical Paul. In the next verse, we're going to learn that he gets stoked in doing this. He gets uh, inspired to do this, uh, I think, more of an intense attack on, on, what, on the uh, unbelieving Jews when Silas and Timothy show up, but we'll get there in a minute. But let's look at the, the, the synagogues that Paul reached out to just in the book of Acts. Damascus in Acts 9, Salamis, Antioch, Pisidia in Acts 13, the synagogues in Iconium, in 14, Thessalonica in 17, Berea in 17, as well as Athens. Well, there was no synagogue in Athens. Uh, Then Corinth, at least none mentioned. Uh, Maybe there was. Anyway, I digress. Don't correct me on that. I could get it myself later. (laughs) And I I don't want you to think you're smarter than me. (laughs) Yeah, it's too late, right? Anyway, uh, Athens, Corinth, where he is now, and then when he gets to Ephesus, and then in Rome. And so again, he's targeting the assemblies to share the message because that was just the wisest way to broadcast the gospel to a group of people who you relatively had their undivided attention. It was uh, very wise, and to this day, it is a good idea. In verse 5 now, when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. So clearly, Luke words this as though Paul was at work before they got there. But when Silas and Timothy showed up, there was, you know, he just inspired on a, another level. Now, he summoned these two men when he was still in Athens. We read that in, in Chapter 17, verse 15, he, he asked for them to come, but he had to leave Athens, and, and he goes to Corinth. Well, they finally catch up, and these, these guys, man, they just, Paul would say, go here, they go. Come here, and they come, uh, with the exception of Apollos that we have in writing, and we'll get to Apollos uh, soon, not this morning, though. Uh, it's just re- remarkable. Anyway, uh, I, I think... When they got there, I know when they got there, they're going to update Paul on where they were. Paul left them in, uh, well, he left Luke in Philippi, maybe Titus. Uh, He left these men at Thessalonica and Berea, he left people. Well, they're going to come and update him on the Jews in um, Berea and Thessalonica. And they're going to tell him they're following the Lord. Paul's going to write letters back to Thessalonians. We have two of them. And so when he tells, when, he, when they tell Paul how well the work is going, yeah, he's inspired. Yeah, it ramps up his, his confidence to go at the, the, the Jews to convert them to their Messiah. Paul needed a, a man like Aaron and, and her, men of spiritual stamina to help hold his arms up. And, and here, here they are. These brave disciples were loyal to this ministry because they could see what Christ was doing and they were a part of it. And we read here in verse 5, Paul was compelled by the Spirit. 
So they come and they see the churches are thriving. They're just following. They're going into the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. They're seeing that Christ is the Messiah. They're preaching it to people, Gentiles and Jews alike. Paul gets this and says, I'm not going to back down here in Corinth. I'm going to ramp it up. And that's what he is doing. He's compelled by the Spirit. Now, there's a subtle contrast between uh, here in Corinth and there in Athens. In Athens, we read, now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, that's Silas and Timothy, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Now, God was still part of that. But it's just a subtle thing. In Athens, Paul's spirit was mo- moved him to action, resulting in slight success. In Corinth, the Holy Spirit compels him into action, and many believe that's how it's worded in verse 8. So just a little thing there. It's not a criticism. It's a fact. And, uh, you know, to, to, we all want to reach lost people. But when we're moved by the Holy Spirit, oh man, things, things happen. And you have to learn to be sensitive to that. And how do you learn to be sensitive to the Spirit's leading? Well, you've got to get skin in the game. You got to be part. You got to do it. You have to start looking to share with people and be ready to share with people your love for Jesus Christ and why you love Him. You have to learn how to take the hits, the scoffers, and and the, the you know those who are just uh, trouble. And you learn after a while. Okay, this is the Spirit's leading, and that was me leading. And uh, it is so. Again, you got to be in it to win it, kind of a thing. It testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. He would talk to them about the virgin birth that Isaiah uh, laid out in Isaiah chapter 7. He would talk to them about the birth in Bethlehem from Micah chapter 5. He would talk to them about the betrayal of Christ for 30 pieces of silver, as said by Zechariah the prophet. He was saying, look, these things aren't a secret. You can write your, your homies in Jerusalem and find out they were witnesses to these things. And many of them said, we don't want to hear it. Our mind is made up. We're going to believe in what we like. And others said, amen, brother, we believe. And that is just a reality that we face. One, one, one outlaw on the cross didn't want to hear it. The other one wanted to be in paradise with Christ. Verse 6, but when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, your blood be upon your own heads, I'm clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And Paul, was he'd, he'd zing them with that. He'd provoke them to jealousy. He didn't mind saying, fine, you don't want to hear it? There's Gentiles that will hear it. Uh, that would anger them even more. But why should he continue his message? He's not going to jam it down their throats. He's not going to cast pearl before swine. Uh, Matthew chapter 10. Jesus said, and whoever will not receive you nor hear your words when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. It's a gesture of saying, I'm done with you. I don't want any of that unbelief coming off on me. Where he says, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean from now on. I will go to the Gentiles. He's saying, the doom is your fault. It's Ezekiel-esque. Ezekiel 33, 7 and 9. is the same kind of, you know, you, you, watchman. You know, make sure you, you preach the gospel to them. So he will, now he will still preach in other synagogues, in other cities. But here in Corinth, he's going to redirect his energy to the non-Jews. Verse, and how did humanity get divided into Jews and non-Jews? Isn't that, isn't that a testimony to the scripture? The whole world plays along with that. There's no one on earth that says, I don't recognize Gentiles and Jews. I just see everybody as one. No, they don't. There's Gentiles and Jews. Where did this come from? You've got to go back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the patriarchs, and there you'll find it. Uh, Israel is a special, it's special. The whole history of Israel is a sermon to earth to this day. You can't explain it. You can't account for it unless there is a creator who is intelligent, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, all of them together. And I like it that way. Verse 7, and we should tell the world, look, you might not like it, but I love it. Because some people, you know, they'll see the genuine love, and they want that too. Others are going to be who they are. Verse 7, and he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justus, 
one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Well, the fact is, one who worshipped God indicates he is a convert. He is a Gentile converted to Judaism. He's going to be a Gentile converted to Judaism and then to uh, Christianity, to the Christ, to the Messiah. He's going to believe that Jesus is the, that the Messiah has come and it is Jesus. When a Gentile accepted the doctrines of Judaism, they became a proselyte at the gate. That's what how the Jews categorized them. Uh, to become a, a full Jew, you'd have to go through the circumcision rites, which many of the Gentiles wanted no part of. And being far away from Jerusalem, it was easier to get away with it. Uh, uh, so anyhow, just a little background information. He says, whose house was next door to the synagogue? Again, the first century church uh, wished they had synagogues that they could meet in, but they had to find people that had a large enough house to, to house uh, visitors. And, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's anyway. Uh, the Jews, they were allowed their synagogues by Rome, but Rome was pretty tight. There were some, some of the Caesars didn't want any parts of paganism outside of uh, folk Roman religion. Anyway, that's, that's just a whole other mess and really doesn't impact us too much. We move on now to verse 8. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. There's so much here. So here Paul, who's in fear, comes to this decadent city, and the people are being converted left and right. And from the synagogue, which a lot of the Jews didn't care for. Crispus is a high-profile Jewish convert. He's a ruler of the synagogue. And, and now he's a Christian. They're going to fire him. And, and we'll, you know, 1 Corinthians 14, it appears that... Well, let me just a little background. 1 Corinthians 1.14. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Caius. <laughs> you see how messed up that church was? Well, you got a pastor saying, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you, except these two guys. <laughs> because, so, because that 1 Corinthians 1 is war. Uh, those first nine chapters is Paul slapping them around <laughs> because they were guilty. They needed that spanking. And it, it's, it worked, incidentally. It worked. That's why we have a 2 Corinthian letter and the tone has changed. But uh, this is that Crispus. Paul baptizes him. He says here, and it says here in verse eight, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were baptized. This is not. This didn't happen in Athens, but it's happening here. What if he was just discouraged in Athens and said, "That's it. I, you know, I laid it out intellectually, clearly, lovingly to these Athenians, and those high-minded dudes didn't want to hear it. I'm done." No, that's not what Paul does. He moves on to Corinth, uh, and, and notice the sequence here in verse eight. Uh, they heard, they believed, they were baptized. This is the Christian way. There's nothing about this that is outdated. There's nothing as well, that was for them back then. It's for us not right now. Again, you get the feeling that those early Christians were big on spreading the gospel and upholding the gospel at the same time. Uh, what good is, it, good is it if you convert somebody to shallow Christianity? Because they're likely not going to survive. Verse 9, now the Lord spoke to Paul in a night vision. I did, I did this verse earlier and messed up on it. This, hold on, maybe there's a sign or one. <laughs> okay. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent. Well, fear was either already working on Paul's mind or on its way. Whether it was such as with Abraham, when Abraham rescued his nephew Lot, uh, and then he worried about the, you know, uh, retaliation, and God came to Abraham and, and encouraged him. Uh, well, here, Paul may be saying, listen, I've been down this road before, I'm hearing the threats, I've, I've preached the gospel, I've made converts, and my, I was beaten and stoned, and maybe he's afraid. Well, he is afraid, no question about it, or else God wouldn't say, don't be afraid. You know, if you walk up to somebody and you're just, you know, casually talking and you just say, don't be afraid. They're going to say, what are you talking about? Unless they're afraid. 
So, you know, it's the same with Joshua, you know, fear not Joshua, you know, in Joshua chapter 1, because Joshua was afraid of the task in front of him. It's understandable. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes to them, he says, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. So, you know, to hear that, okay, Paul is miserable too, in sharing the gospel, but Corinth was worth it. And it was worth it because God had many people there. He happened to tell Paul that this time. Most of the time, God doesn't say that. Most of the time, he says, be faithful. And uh, Paul was victorious in other places where God did not have to tell him this, but he does here. So the Lord strengthens him in the midst of a decadent Corinth. And in verse 8, we 10, pardon me, verse 10, the Lord says, For I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. Well, they will attack him verbally, but they will not attack him to hurt him. Uh, even the Jews, that they were attacking him. Uh, the Christian life is to be lived behind a shield, not within a bubble. And that's what we're seeing. And, and this is common uh, Psalm 5, verse 12, talks about the, the Lord being a shield for us. A lot of folks don't want to go to church because they don't want the pain of interaction. They don't want their toes stepped on. They don't want the drama that comes with being around human beings and being plugged in. And they're missing out because it is worth it. And what is the, what is the alternative what if all Christians lived that way? What would happen if all Christians said, ah, we don't need to go to church? What would you have? You would have a spastic body that could not control itself, that's moving in directions it shouldn't move in involuntarily. Uh, it would just be what God did not want it to be. And that's why there's such an emphasis on the body of Christ, which the Lord bought with his blood, and it is the local body. I'm so sick of people. Oh, the church is everywhere. Yeah, it is. But that's your cop-out line. If you're not into understanding, there is to be a local assembly because there is power in that against hell. And if you don't believe it, just attend one of those <laughs> assemblies and you'll find out that hell targets the church. You don't be so surprised. God said to him, for I have many people in this city. God always sees more than us, always more than his servants and everybody else. Uh, and, but again, this, these words to Paul would explain his readiness to be afraid, his readiness to suffer for the gospel. And these lives are held up next to our lives. And God says, uh, how are we doing? I don't care if it's Joseph in jail, if it's Esther facing death, if it's Paul going from city to city, these characters are held up next to us. And we may not be able to be like a Paul, but we can grab a portion of it. We can fill our hands with as much of it as we can get, and we will be better off, and so will others. But you've got to be willing to die to self, or else it's not going to work well. You have to be willing to get your feelings hurt, or else it won't work well. Uh, uh, anyway, for I have many people in this city, verse 11, and he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So this is the foundation of this church. Now, how did Paul feel when he invested so much into this church? He taught them personally, only to find out they're attacking him. An element in that church was fiercely attacking him and, and behaving like uh, just, you know, the incest that was, I mean, just the crazy things. You get to 1 Corinthians 5, you say, man, I can't believe this is in church. But he didn't give up. The conceited Athenians, they were too self-impressed to be burdened in their hearts and receive the gospel. But the corrupt Corinthians saw their need for a savior. Paul had three extended stays in big cities that we know about. In Corinth, he stayed for a year and a half, as we read here in verse 11. Ephesus for three and a half years. Ephesus, he invested in Ephesus. John the Apostle invested in Ephesus. Apollos invested, invested in Ephesus. All of these big guns, 
only to hear Jesus say, you left your first love. Discouragement is everywhere. Try not to pick it up. It's on the ground like gravel. Rome, two years, Acts 28, at least. And there's repeat visits also with these. Verse 12, then Galileo was proconsul in Achaia. The Jews, uh, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat. Well, this is the very thing the Lord was saying, don't worry about these guys. Uh, I'm with you. Now, this last, when the Lord says, said to him, fear not, I have people in Corinth. <laughs> that was Corinth. <laughs> what about Jerusalem and Rome? Because he's going to go to Jerusalem. Oh, well, God's going to be with him. And, well, but ultimately, uh, God will just bring him home. Anyway, uh, Galileo is the brother of Seneca, who was the tutor of Nero the Caesar, that butcher. Uh, Nero will order both of their suicides. They give them an alternative. Kill yourself or we'll kill you for you. And he, uh, first Seneca, the great teacher, and Nero was a good Caesar for a while there. And then he, he went off the, the rails. And Seneca, when he did, he got rid of Seneca because that was just irritating to his conscience. And then Seneca's brother, this Galileo here, he too. Anyway, verse 13, uh, they're continuing with their charges, saying this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And here we go again. Well, again, the Roman folk religion was, was, was embraced and other, even pagan religions, weren't tolerated uh, by Rome. They could fly beneath the radar. And here they're trying to get Galileo to just get rid of them. Uh, I, I think when Paul gets in front of Nero and he lays out, we're not Jews, we are Christians, uh, Nero takes that and says, really? And then he had a scapegoat. And uh, he, he began to persecute the Christians to the favor of the Jews that were not Messianic. Verse 14, and when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, oh, Jews. Uh, it's interesting how Luke puts that in there, right? He throws that emotion in there. He says, there would be no reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, Look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge over such matters. So Galileo saw that Christianity emerged from Judaism. And so he's thinking that it's just a sect of Judaism. And so he's saying, look, I don't want to hear it. Court's not here for that. You got a traffic ticket or something you want to talk about? Otherwise, beat it. And uh, that's essentially what happens. He wants no part of this. After all, Rome just chased out the, the Jews for the same thing. Crestus, arguing over Christ. So verse 16, and he drove them from the judgment seat, which implies they still argued. So he had to forcefully get them out. This irritated the court. Verse 17, then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Galileo took no notice of these things. Well, they had to drive him out, and in the process of their... Once their blood got hot, they started hitting. Sosthenes evidently replaced Crispus as the ruler of, of the synagogue, and he became the, the target. They singled him out, and they gave him a beatdown. It appears that he became a Christian. It doesn't always work this way. When Paul writes again to the Corinthians, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. Uh, you catch, you know, you just can't keep things that close and disassociate them. If Paul is in Corinth, there is a Sosthenes there. He's directly related. Many people are coming to Christ, many of them Jewish. And then, <coughs> pardon me. And then when he writes back to Corinth, he mentions Sosthenes, and he points out he's our brother. So, uh, as with most Bible teachers, uh, this is very likely uh, the Sosthenes that, be, that gets converted. Because probably the only people that are showing him any love are the Christians. Because the Jews are probably frustrated. You failed in court. You blew it. Uh, but it says, but Galileo took no notice of these things. Well, Rome and Greece, they didn't really care for the Jews. They tolerated them. They benefited from them. But the fickle mind, 
of man and his concept of law. I thought, I thought you were a, a, a magistrate, a, a, law, a judge. I thought you were supposed to uphold justice. But he looks the other way. Well, that's just a, a little note that Luke puts in there. It says, remember where you are amongst the corrupt. This is why salvation is needed. Let's pray. Our Father, real people, real lessons, just like we are real people in need of real lessons, and we thank you for these things. When heeded, when thought through in the Spirit, they are a great benefit to us, to we who believe. To those who do not believe, they are all, to those who have rejected your salvation, they are all predestined for an eternal judgment unless they repent. They get one lifetime, one lifetime and many, many opportunities to open their heart to Jesus Christ. If you've been watching online or listening, if you're here in the church building, hearing the sermon, maybe you've come into a keener awareness that you're outside of salvation, that Christ is true, and you're not right with Him. If you want your sin dealt with by God rather than you having your sin deal with you, then open your heart to Jesus Christ. Come to Him. Understand that the Bible is not this collection of theories and philosophies of men guessing about God and man and eternity. But these are revealed facts by a very real God who is holy and pure and all-powerful. And He invites you to come into heaven through his son, Jesus Christ. But you have to make the confession. You have to confess your sin and his glory. If you make this prayer with me, this, exa- this example of a prayer, you will be received. If you say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I have broken your commandments, your laws. I am worthy of punishment. But I ask you to forgive me. Because you offer forgiveness to those who come to you. I come and I ask you to be the one that saves my soul from judgment for my sin. And the one who rules over my life as my Lord. And I give my life to you. Amen. Pastors are to my left and right.